Hello, welcome to Hattrick. I'm Jordan Dollar Coltman, joined by Elliot Tanti and Braden Dollar Coltman. Um, it's been a busy week. We've got lots we're going to discuss here. Um, before we do, it's obviously been a very busy weekend in Edmonton. Elliot, uh, I know you had some quality time with the Pope. Uh, anything you want to share? Uh, any news from on high? Uh, not too much to report. You know, I think tomorrow is going to be the big day where they're shutting down streets. It's going to get a little crazy. I wonder where the Pope stays when he's in Edmonton. Would it naturally be the Hotel McDonald or would they have like a private residence set up with a bunch of security? The Super well, Western Motel. I know in uh, in BC there's like a government house that's like dedicated as like a like a like a residence for the lieutenant governor that's also got like guest rooms for like dignitaries like when the queen comes to visit but I don't know maybe there's something like that in Alberta it's probably the uh, isn't there like a sky mansion or something that uh, I think it's yeah, called um, built? Actually, I think it's called the, the Fantasyland Hotel yeah the Pope putting the Pope in either Fantasyland Hotel or the Sky Palace would be an interesting choice for sure. And then, do you think if he's at the Fantasyland, is he is he trying out the Skyscreamer or or uh, the roller coaster, which is the attraction that he gets first? Well, I'm more interested in what theme room he chooses to use. Mm. Uh, of course, <laughs> there's the race of car. One. I, mean, I would say that I would say the go karting for sure. He, he and he'd pop in one of his little Pope mobiles. You know, they they paved brand new roads on every road he's going to be on and if the city was thinking ahead they could have hit all of the residential zones with all of their potholes and fixed up the city nice and good it does feel like a very exorbitant amount of money to be spent on something and obviously it's very important for the purposes of why he's there but it does feel like you know whenever these kind of things happen you start to wonder where the heck was this money when we just had like normal everyday problems that could be solved with all of this money Maybe we'll just leave that there as an unanswerable question. Uh, let's move on. Here's topic that one. That was topic one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So just before we get to topic one, we've done, uh, we've had conversations like this before in the past, and, and we just wanted to, to, to lead off with this again. This is a bit of a trigger warning and a bit of a um, listener advisory. Uh, the conversation we're about to have will involve conversations around sexual violence um, if you or anyone you know has been a victim of sexual crime, um, there are resources available as, as, uh, as simple as calling 911 and reporting it is, is the first step. But if you uh, feel like that's too public, too, too personal, and you want something that's a little bit more confidential, um, there are resources. Obviously, being in Alberta and BC-based uh, show, we're going to focus on those. So I'm going to give you two numbers now if you or anyone you know has been the victim of sexual violence. In Alberta, the number to call is one 403 8000 That's 403-8000. Uh, in BC, the number is 1-800-563-0808. And again, um, the conversation we're going to have will deal with sexual violence conversations around sexual violence. So if you are uncomfortable, please skip ahead at this point. Um, we completely respect that. You can move on to topic two. Um, so there you go. There, 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 we'll, 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 we'll leave that there. Okay. So uh, obviously I think most people know where we're going with this uh, more unbelievable reporting by TSN's Rick Westhead. I mean, if there is not a more important journalist in Canada right now, I don't know who it is. Um, Rick Westhead has continued to 
uh, expose just scandal after scandal when it comes to, um, in this case, sexual violence surrounding hockey. First, of course, we heard and, and followed his reporting through the terrible uh, situation surrounding the Chicago Blackhawks and the cover-up there, but that was just the beginning of what was going to be a very, very difficult year here when it came to the reckoning of the toxic masculinity bro culture surrounding hockey. Hockey Canada, which we have been talking about on previous episodes, of course, they are now under intense scrutiny, including that of the federal government, for their handling of what has been reported as a um, a gang rape um, to, to put it bluntly, uh, in London, Ontario, following a sanctioned Team Canada event golf tournament um, that involved members of the 2018 World Junior Hockey Team. That investigation has now exceed, extended. We talked about this last week. Both Hockey Canada and the NHL are investigating uh, that incident, as well now as the London Police Department is reopening their own investigation to look whether or not they handled it correctly, and moreover, if criminal prosecution uh, should be pursued. On top of that, throughout the continuing discovery that is going on with this special committee, uh, parliamentary committee, looking into this incident and others, just unbelievable new uh, information coming to light. The first being that there was a very similar um, incident that is being reported now surrounding the 2003 World Junior Team. Uh, again, a, a group rape um, is being accused. This one was actually filmed. And at one point that that video existed, whether we know it exists now or not, I believe is what's in question. And there is that's part of the investigation. Um, but that information, again, brought forth by Rick Westhead continues to just expose that this is not just a, um, a small problem, but an exceedingly uh, systemic issue within Hockey Canada. And on top of that, we also learned this week that Hockey Canada had a covert fund, several million dollars set aside under the guidance of the Vice President of Insurance uh, and Risk Assessment, basically a slush fund designed to be used to pay off potential um, accusers, victims of crimes perpetrated by members of Hockey Canada. Um, this is, this is an, another, again, peeling back of this absolutely rotten onion, and we're learning more and more every day. I, I mean, at this point, does anything surprise us? It shouldn't. Um, I'll go to Elliot first. I, I, I know you're probably going to start to feel like a broken record, um, because this is the exact same conversation we had last week, but with this new information, I mean, are we not at the point where Hockey Canada, much like uh, USA Gymnastics following the the Nasser investigation, much like several other organizations that have gotten to this point, are we not at like the point of no return with this organization? Do we not just need to strip this down to the studs and start over again? Well, I think probably but not before we know everything and anything that's happened over the last 20 years. Cause the fear that I have is that there are more allegations out there and more, you know, awful things that have occurred um, surrounding this team, this organization, the U18 tournament in general. And, and so some significant work needs to be done here to find out like, what are the facts? Like, like how many more instances of this are we aware of? How many times has someone been paid off? Uh, who was making those decisions uh, and how many victims do we have here? I mean, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is a pattern. 
And, and it's hard to believe that these are just two isolated incidents anymore. So, so yes, I, you know, I, I think that's probably where we need to go from an end standpoint. But I think much more importantly right now is that we need to be going back you know, over the last at least 20, maybe 30 years of tournaments um, to get as much, the, the information and facts straight because where there's smoke, there's fire and there continues to be these issues. Uh, Brady? I think even further beyond uh, Hockey Canada, there's a great many players now that are in representing the National Hockey League and, and, and other leagues across, um, across the world. And I think that, that this culture, you know, we're, we're seeing the evidence of what this culture is and, and the dark cobwebs associated. And I think that further investigation uh, and, and thoroughly, thoroughly mining that is going to be very important to, to actually being a step in changing that culture. I mean, I think both of you are, are, are on the right path as far as what I'm concerned with, but I, I would take it a step further and say, I do think that it's time to, really start to have the conversation about where, like, how do we hold this organization and more specifically the people who have been in the positions of power within it accountable? So obviously we're at the beginning stages of these new investigations. And I say beginning because they're being reopened. This should not have been, I mean, we're talking about 2003. 2003, that's 20 years ago. The fact that this information is just coming to light now and the fact that this was something that was filmed that that video was disseminated to at least multiple people, whether it's two, three, four, I don't care who, how many number of people, people knew about this. People saw this. People knew this was wrong at the time and said and did nothing much like the Chicago Blackhawks situation. I believe that obviously the perpetrator of the crime is the first person we should be dealing with here. I think that that's true in this situation. The players who are responsible for these actions should be held accountable. There should be justice for these victims. But there is a secondary part to this that is equally, as far as I'm concerned, uh, important for the credibility of this country and how we believe and support uh, the sport. And that is the accountability of the other people. So we've talked about Tom Rennie, who has obviously resigned, whether he was already planning to resign or because he saw the smoke signal and knew this was coming. Regardless, Tom Rennie was in a position of power. But the other person that I would really like to have some answers from who I have not heard a whisper about is Bob, Bob Nicholson, Bob Nicholson. who is now obviously responsible for the running of the Edmonton Oilers, which is close to our backyard. But the truth of the matter is he was the CEO of hockey Canada for over two decades, including the period of time in question here. If this slush fund was started, here's the biggest thing. If this slush fund was started, that tells you they knew. As far as I'm concerned, that's guilt right there. The fact that this exists is an acknowledgement that they knew they had a problem because look, you don't start a volunteer fire department if there's no threat of fire. It just doesn't happen. You don't start uh, uh, you know, any of these, these kind of funds that are designed to pay off people unless you have pay people to pay off. And the only reason you have people to pay off is because there are people who are accusing players within your organization of committing crimes. And the other part that's frustrating to me is that there, this is not something that people didn't know about. And it's not something that people were sending up other flares and signals about. One of the players who's gotten a lot of criticism on Twitter, maybe rightfully, we don't know, and I'm not, we're not going to sling mud, is Jordan Tutu, who has obviously come out and now denied his involvement in this. But I'm sorry, in Jordan Tutu's memoir written four years ago, 
he talks about the rampant sex being had by members of that team in the locker room with girls. And his exact words, and I quote, it wasn't just one-on-one action, end quote. That's in his book. Now, whether that's him perpetrating it or he just acknowledging that it was happening, I'm sorry. That's a, no one in Hockey Canada read that and thought, we might want to double check on this. No, of course they didn't because they already knew. That's well, where I, that's where my frustration. Double check for sure. Yeah, yeah. There, that said, Jordan, there is a difference here between consensual sex, which you I'm can have. That, I'm not denying that. And somebody I'm, who was. I'm not denying that there, there's probably the- lots of consensual sex being had. I'm not denying that. What I'm pointing out, though, is that there were enough red flags for Hockey Canada that had a slush fund. I would like to know every single transaction that that account has been used for and why and every single one of those cases i would like to ensure that every single one of those cases was given the opportunity for that victim to actually seek legal justice and wasn't just hush money that's what i'd like and as a Canadian citizen whose tax money went towards this organization i think we're all entitled to that at this point i think you're totally right on that front and and i do get like the slush fund um and I don't know if that's alleged or if it's proven or wh- where we're at with that. But, you know, regardless, the alleged slush, slush fund related to issues, legal issues related to, to the organization uh, is completely inappropriate. It's grotesque, actually, yeah. uh, that rather than dealing with the core issue here, that, that that's the solution is, the, you know, that's the stuff that like mega corporations and slummy billion, you know, you know, weird billionaires have like, you know, this is this is a this is for all intents and purposes a public organization. Uh, it's publicly funded uh, and it's not a charity, but I'm sure it's not for, it's got not for profit status. Uh, and, and if not, it doesn't matter anyway, it's receiving federal fundings and, and there's an expectation around the behavior of not only its employees, but the outcomes of what it, with what it promotes. And I believe its mission is not about necessarily generating the most successful team. It's about growing and building the game of hockey. Mm-hmm. And explain, someone explained to me right now, how that organization is doing so when we continue to have these issues. So I, I'm with you 100%. I do. I, I find the, the, the slush fund is, 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 is despicable. Um, but, you know, that is, that is a symptom, right? We have a much larger cancer in that organization. And you can't uh, expel a cancer unless you know every part of the body that it's in. And we just do not have that information. I'm thankful for Rick Westhead. What, not only what has he done with his reporting uh, is sensational in terms of bringing these things to light, but I think he's now operating, you know, he's seen as a person of trust, a person of integrity, and clearly victims are coming to him and feel comfortable doing that. So I'm grateful for him and, and his work. Um, uh, and, but th- this is much, you know, good for him for exposing this, but it's out of his hands now. Now, you know, we, we yeah. need to start expecting something more. But it's encouraging the conversations, which is great. And it's bringing those people who have no, you know, I one world championship team to the next championship team to the next hockey team to know, you know, what's actually happening here. What's, you know, we, from somebody who plays hockey, being in a locker room, even a rec league, I go, I can, I can feel some of that still in, in this locker room, this, this, you know, this, this toxic nature, there's, there's, there's a culture here that is, that is rampant and, and it needs some serious, serious change. And it's going to take a, a lot of work still. Well, and I think that that's what I'm frustrated by is the fact that you've got an organization that has 
as far as I'm concerned, sold Canadians like a false bill here at this point. Like we, we, we have to realize that this is, this is so systemic that they, and, and this is not alleged, Elliot, Hockey Canada came out this week and acknowledged that they would stop using this investment fund for that purpose, acknowledging that they had been. That's the part of that that's, that, that, that's the, the biggest frustration for me is that they've acknowledged the complicity of this organization has been using this fund to pay off accusers of crimes like the mob and that is what bothers me the most is that they were doing it covertly that the oversight committee in the parliamentary oversight committee that that was responsible for funding team canada had no idea this existed the fact that the board of governors is apparently unaware that this is happening it was a it was under everybody's fucking nose and yet they still didn't know it was right there and that's what bothers me i think on top of again as i said this is two of these. The other thing that's also, and I'm not trying to play conspiracy theory here, but pay close attention to this part. We've heard about two so far. One is in 2018, one is in 2003, both are in Canada. This tournament takes place predominantly on a North America, European back and forth schedule. How many of these incidents happened overseas? How many times has this specific tournament seen these kind of crimes committed? If it's already two, that's a pattern. Where's the third? Where's the fourth? That's what I'm saying. We are about, we could be just at the tip of an ugly, ugly reckoning. That is, if it feels bad today, just wait and see what else is coming. Because I'm telling you, at the very least, there's, there's incidents of, of harassment, uh, oh, incidents of, of lesser crimes. There's incidents of all of that. I guarantee when you start peeling back how corrupt this organization has clearly been and how they've been run and how poorly it has been dealt with. I agree with you, Elliot. Rick Westhead should be commended. I think that when the dust settles on all of this, he deserves a lot of credit. I've already pointed out, I believe very strongly, he is the most important reporter in this country right now in terms of the reporting he is doing. This has the potential to be just as big as the Dr. Nasser scandal in the United States in terms of how it's rocking an international organization. And I go back to my first question and I will answer it straight up here. I believe Hockey Canada should be absolutely and utterly disbanded as it currently exists and rebuilt from the ground up. That's what I believe. I believe that this is so systemic. And I also expect accountability for those who knew and did nothing. That's where I will leave it there, for me at least. That for me is, that is the bare fucking minimum. All right, let's leave it there. Topic two this week is brought to us by Busy Bee Vegan Skincare. Busy Bee is an all-natural skincare line dedicated to healthy, vegan, plant-based skincare and overall wellness. They offer a selection of handcrafted body scrubs, butters, and washes that not only make your skin glow, but smell amazing. Their unique all-natural scents include gingerbread, ruby grapefruit, caramel cake, and morning latte. So why not treat your skin to something fresh and all-natural? Head over to shopbusybevegan.com today. And as a special bonus, Busy Bee is offering listeners of this podcast a 15% discount on your first order with the code ORDINARYPODCASTS. All right, topic two. Uh, let's talk about uh, a, a very different side of the business of hockey. We've spent a lot of time already this summer talking about the offseason. There's been a lot of NHL news trades, free agency, nothing bigger than what I am going to argue. This is my hot take for this segment. I'm going to argue is the biggest trade of the cap era in the NHL. When you look at the caliber of players being moved. Okay. We've had the PK Subban, Shea Weber, both guys were over there 
Apex Mountain. They were on the backside of of where their talent was and the result proved. I don't know. Right? About that. Taylor Hall for for Adam Larson. Yeah, there has not been a lot of like superstar for superstar trades in the NHL in the last decade. This is absolutely one of them. We all knew something had to give in the Matthew Kachuk situation. Look, Calgary had taken Gaudreau leaving right on the chin. They had been the butt of every single joke, especially out of oil country with oiler friends being like, oh, we broke the Calgary Flames. Well, look at looky, looky here. They went out and they traded Matthew Kachuk, who had come back to them and said, look, I'm not re-signing as an RFA. I don't want to play here anymore. They took that incredibly difficult asset. They sent it to Florida. They got back Jonathan Huberdeau, Mackenzie Weger, a prospect, and a first-round pick. And all they had to give up alongside as a sweetener was a fourth, conditional. Here's the thing. We'll, I'll let both of you answer this question in a second, but before we do, let me just set this up. Matthew Kachuk, great player, probably top 15 player, and look, top 10 scorer last season. Jonathan Huberdeau was a finalist for the heart, he was number two in scoring and arguably one of the top five players in the league in the last five or six years. Unbelievable blue chip player. Now, yes, he's on the last year of a deal, but I'm sorry, from Calgary's perspective, you want to talk about saving face? That is a hell of a deal. Elliot, from your perspective, initial reactions, Chuck for Huberto and all of the other parts of it, who wins this deal, Calgary or Florida? Uh, it's tough, and I, and I don't think we'll know for certain until uh, next season uh, comes around. I, I think Florida is still in win-now mode, uh, and they see Chuck as, you know, their their ticket to being there. They're in a very difficult, difficult, difficult cap situation. I, you know, but at the same time, Calgary has managed to save face in this situation, and, and maybe that's all they needed to do to win. Uh, it's been a very tricky 10 days for them. And so to see something get done, I mean, I guess you give the edge to Calgary. They've got, you know, they've kind of solidified their future. They've got a big star, as you said. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess uh, Calgary, it is very interesting. And, and I go back to this whole thing around, you know, the last two off seasons have been incredibly fun because the cap hasn't moved at all. And mm-hmm. Um, when you've just got a baked in 5%, you know, $5 million increase every year, year over year, um, it's led to some kind of boring off seasons to your point around this being the biggest trade ever. And I sort of like what this is doing in terms of the pressure it's putting on teams, but, and the the deals that they're being forced to make. So uh, I think this is good for the game and I think it's exciting probably for both cities. Um, but in terms of who wins this trade, I think it's yet to be yet to be determined. Okay, Braden, before I ask you, like, I'll let you kind of dig into who you think win, but let me rephrase the question a little bit from like a basketball perspective. When you basketball. look at Calgary, well, just hear me out. When you look at what happened just now in Calgary, Johnny yeah, Gaudreau yeah. sort of, I don't know, like leaving Calgary at the last minute. It sounded like all in the yeah. future, he was still negotiating with Calgary up until yeah, the last Yeah, but his family doesn't live there, and that was his priority Fine. for the year. Sounded like he was still interested in, to some degree, or at least gave them the impression. Sure, yeah, 9.8 million is nothing to sneeze at. But Right, at least gave them the impression he was interested in this thing. And then you have Matthew Kachuk, who's now basically said, trade me or I'm not re-signing. Is this the beginning of the player empowerment era of the NHL? Oh, I mean, we've you... seen in the NBA. We've seen yeah. a lot of this in the NBA, yeah. right? Guys demanding trades. I don't want to play here. I'm going to go play somewhere else. I'm going to decide where I play. Is this an indication that this kind of trend might be beginning here? We haven't seen a lot of it, but look, this is two players from the very same team who clearly did not want to be in Calgary. 
whether or not Goudreau's departure really was a factor for Kachuk, it probably made a, a difference, but he probably already had one foot out the door. Do you believe this is the beginning of a trend like that? I'm not sure we're going to see it to the extent. I do agree with Elliot that the last couple off seasons have been fun as a result of the salary cap being stagnant, but I don't think, and in that it's because we've seen so much shift, so many, so many moving parts. I think this year we've had just a remarkable amount. Like we're going to see some brand new faces in, in on new teams. Um, I'm not sure if we'll, we're going to see it to that extent of, of players saying, nope, I'm out. But I think with, you know, this situation, I think Goudreau knew he wasn't going to stick around. And I think Ticklechuk also knew early on that he wasn't going to stay uh, into the off season. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think we're going to, Knock on wood, we're not going to see this happen with with our own team uh, in four years to, to come. But uh, I don't I don't think that we're going to see it the same way the NBA sees uh, players moving around. As as for the results of this specific trade, I think um, yeah, Calgary saved face, but they're only going to have these guys for a year. I I, I highly doubt they're going to sign long term. They, they have the money to, but... But isn't that enough of a win? They're just kind Calgary? of on the edge. They're gonna... But, I mean, from the perspective that you're about to lose season? Goudreau, you're, you're about to lose Goudreau, and you were about to lose Kachuk. You, you're basically in a rebuild. Now you're not. You've postponed it at least a year. At least you've a year. lengthened yeah. the runway. You've given yourself an opportunity to win. And I'm sorry, but I can't guarantee you that two Canadian players don't want to play in Canada. That's, I think that that's the big wild card here that I don't think is fair. There's been a lot of punditry around like, wow, these guys are on last deal. Why would they want to stay in Calgary? They might want to stay in Calgary because Calgary has got a shit ton of cap space now. Can you offer these guys a hell of a lot of money, make them absolute kings. Both of them have played outside of Canada their entire careers. There's an opportunity for them to enjoy being in a Canadian market, maybe that's something one or both of them is interested in. I'm talking about Uyghur as well. Look, they're different calibers. There's no conversation no, about Uyghurs, that. But Uyghurs even just from the Jonathan Huberdeau perspective, yeah. sure, you can argue he's up from out east. McDavid's from out east. For, for half, of the, half of the Canadian players in the league are from out east. The truth is he may very much enjoy being the superstar of the Calgary Flames. We don't know that. So from Calgary's perspective, well, that's clearly a gamble they're willing to make. And for this year, not only to save face, but equally, I mean, they were number one in the, in, in the West. Um, they take the best player, arguably, off of the President Trophy best team in the East. You plug that into the team they already had there, he at least makes up the points of Goudreau. I mean, the guy had 115 points this year, 185 assists. I mean, that's insane numbers for a guy who is clearly an elite, elite level. Look, Matthew Kachuk, from the Florida perspective, is a great guy, especially, and this is also, here's an interesting stat for you in the cap era. It's the first ever sign-and-trade in the NHL. That's something we see all the time in the NBA. We have never seen this in the NHL. A guy signs the eight-year deal so he can get the extra year with the promise from the team that they're going to trade him to a team that he's on his list. They do that. They give him the eight years. That guarantees Florida that they have a genuine top-line guy for the next eight years. They can build their plan moving forward with that. They didn't know if they'd be able to assign uh, afford Jonathan Huber. As far as I'm concerned, this is one of the most balanced trades I've seen in a very long time. Both teams come out looking really good. As Elliot said, we won't really know who wins until we see the results. But from Calgary's perspective, they get a genuine superstar back when both of their budding superstars leave. And Florida, I think Florida moves almost laterally. They probably lose about 16, 17 points. 
to be honest with you. In terms, if Matthew Kinchuk can play at the same level, that's all I would say. And so, he was hurt last part of last year too. It fills a couple other voids too. I mean, like Calgary needs a captain. So I think lots of what's going to happen with John and Huberto will know in the early stages of this year. Like if the, if he does accept the captaincy, which is something that Chuck wasn't willing to do, uh, you know, that might be an indication of him willing to stay. If obviously he signs a deal midseason or this summer, then that's obviously, you know, that's the ultimate ind- indicator as well. Um, I can't get over how much of a gamble this is though. And the other thing is, Daryl Sutter has a certain way of coaching, Mm -hmm. a certain way of being. And no one's discussed this, but I wonder what impact that's had on some of this as well, too. And and I think lots of what will happen for Calgary and Huberto's ultimate decision that he makes will come down to uh, whether he jives with the coach because it's a very unique style. It's not, he, he doesn't seem to be the typical NHL coach that's really focused on relationships and communications. You know, he's an old school, tough guy. And I wonder if that didn't work for Johnny Gruderow. I wonder how much that had to do with it. I wonder how much the impact that had on Kachuk. And 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 Huberdeau is going to be the next one, right? The thing, though, if you look at who Huberdeau has played under, I mean, now he was removed for good reason last year. But Quinville is a very similar vintage to what Daryl Sutter is. I think okay. Quinville probably is a, is a similar type of coach. Look, I would also argue, I think Huberdeau is undervalued, especially in the the media because of where he's been playing. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. I, I would say the biggest storyline for me going into next season is the fact that you are probably going to have the top three. Okay, maybe you throw Kale McCarr or McKinnon into that conversation, but let's say at least two of the top five players in the NHL in terms of scoring and points playing in Canada. You have Austin Matthews, Connor McDavid, and now Jonathan Huberdeau on Canadian teams in the Canadian markets that have the kind of attention and media attention that hockey gets them. Well, let's and not I forget Claude that, Giroux and Debrinkat in Ottawa. Sure, but I mean, they're not in American the same team. class yeah. right now. They're just not. I mean, those. Well, I'm talking about the – I literally just named the three Hart finalists. They're all now playing in Canada. Mm-hmm. And that, for me, is a big thing. People are going to realize how really good Huberto has been quietly under the radar in Florida. And they're going to go, holy shit. I, I can't even tell you how many times this week alone after this trade happened, I spoke to people. And they were shocked when they looked at his numbers because they just haven't even noticed them. They were like, wait a minute. What are you talking about? He was second in points. I'm like, yeah, guys. The guy literally the, the, has just been off the, off the hook. And look, it's going to be exciting as Oilers fans to have that kind of – talent coming the other way in Calgary. It's different than what they've had. They haven't had this kind of, like Johnny Gaudreau was a, was a uh, an elite scorer, but he was small. He was undersized. Jonathan Huberdeau is a big guy who scores. He's a power forward. He plays aggressive offensive hockey. He's going to be hard for any team to, to shut down. He will fit nicely into what Calgary's got going. And I want to point one more thing out. You mentioned Nazem Kadri, and I'm sorry, there's not a lot of center depth on this team. I'm looking at them right now. It's Michael Backlund, and then the next guy down there, uh-huh. Lindholm. Lindholm, who's also a right winger. Top one center. Okay. That was the best line in the league. Great. Last That's year. two. I got two guys. You got four lines to fill. Who's the next guy? Kevin, Kevin Rooney. Rooney. They just brought him in. It's a fourth line. What are they, what's, um, what are they going to so put Nazem Kadri on the fourth line? You've only got three. You've only got three right now, Braden. Who's the fourth line center? Who's the third line center? Who's this guy switching up into the second? Backlund, all I'm pointing out. All I'm pointing out. Lindholm. At Monahan is still in the wind, and there is nine point three million dollars of cap space still available to the Calgary Flames. 
they have a lot of money because they had a lot of money sitting aside ready for Goudreau and waiting for Kachuk and it is all sitting there and there are going to be free agents at the end of this thing going without a dance partner going well Calgary's got some money to spend on me and they'll go and take a, a, a deal for one year even if it's a one year deal because but Nazem Kadri about, won't makes take a one year deal Jordan this is the thing Nazem Kadri is well, not going to join this team if they know they're going to be play dumping next year if they're going to go into a rebuild well, they're not he's not going to stick around who else is signing him? The New York Islanders, the Seattle Kraken will be signing Nazem Kadri. All right. Well, all I'm pointing out is we are currently July 25th, and it has. I just don't see Naz wants Naz wants term. Fine. I don't think he's going to look for. He it might recognize that there's no dance partner at the term he wants right now, and he might want to bet on himself, and he might take a five or a six million dollar one year deal from a team like Calgary, who has a shot, a genuine shot at competing again, and he may say, "This is my opportunity." To go out there, and if I do well with this team, they may give me a long-term deal. And if I don't, I can go and be a UFA again next year. I'm just gamble after the guy just won the Stanley Cup. I don't disagree with you, but why hasn't he signed already then? Why hasn't he signed? Because he's asking either too much money or there isn't a deal he likes yet. And I'm just saying there's deals to be had. $9.3 million. You're telling me Calgary's not going to spend a little bit more of that? They're going to go find options. They're going to be exciting. And I think for that reason, I still think Calgary wins this deal because of all of the intrinsic elements that this deal gives them. It gets them out of sort of the doghouse reputation-wise. It keeps them on a track of being competitive. They don't go into a full rebuild. They get out from underneath those two sort of toxic clouds surrounding those two players who clearly didn't want to be there. It may all come crashing down again on them next year. We don't know that, though. And they can't play the what-if game. They're playing the right-now game. And frankly, as a hockey fan, I like that. I like the team I cheer for. Benning's for sure on the hot seat, though. I mean, this whole season will be a, a challenge for, for yeah. Ben. Any last thoughts, Elliot? Blake Coleman, Jonathan Huberdeau, Uyghur, Trevor Lewis, all UFAs next year. Sure. So they've got to make happen. They're saying win now. Or they've got to, they've got to convince those guys to totally. sign. Otherwise, they're in big trouble. Okay, but here's the other thing I would say. Even if that's the case, even if that's the case, you can't tell me that as an asset, Jonathan Huberto doesn't also get oh, Calgary something incredible. They either re-sign him or yeah. they trade or him they for trade multiple the players oh, or And teams, so, I think, are already calling to, to find out if, if, the, if he'll be moved right now. And I'm sure that his asset value is still quite large only at one year. That's how they got tickled, Chuck. You know, like, yeah. All right. Well, let's leave it there for now. Obviously, we'll wait and see how this plays out. But uh, the probably... I would argue the biggest trade of the cap era, but at least the biggest trade of the summer. Do you like fast cars? Do you like when they race? Whether you're a seasoned Formula One fan or you've just discovered the rush of racing, check out the Pit Stop Podcast presented by the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Join Jordan, Tyler, and Braden each week as they recap every race as well as break down the biggest stories on and off the track, all before setting you up for the next race in the Formula One schedule. The Pit Stop Podcast is available anywhere you get your podcast. All right, we're going to close it out with hats off. I'll go first. Uh, I'd like to tip my hat today to Canada's best golfer, Brooke Henderson, who won her second major, uh, her last major coming in 2016 at the KPMG LPGA championship. It's been a few years fought hard for her to get back up to the top of the women's game. Uh, she won the Avani masters in France tonight. Uh, I guess today 
tomorrow, whatever day it is in France right now. She just won it uh, at the time of recording this here Sunday. So she won it Sunday. Look, a big uh, gutsy win for her. She actually it went all the way down to the 18th hole. She had to birdie the 18th to win it, and she sank a 12-footer. Brooke Henderson has uh, endeared herself to a lot of Canadian golf fans as just one of those players who, no matter what adversity she's facing, there's always a big grin on her face. She fights hard. She plays well. A big inspiration to a lot of young boys and girls playing golf in Canada. Uh, we've had Mike Weir, we've, you know, we've got a couple guys on the PGA side, but as far as I'm concerned, she's the most important golfer right now in Canada, the best golfer in Canada. And look, she's a two-time ma- uh, major winner uh, in the LPGA, and my hat goes off to her. I guess my visor, because she's one of those players who put in the body. My visor goes off. <laughs> uh, Elliot, who are, you, who are you taking your hat off to this week? Well, boys, I have four words for you. <laughs> Long live Red Bull. My hat this week goes to Max Verstappen, who captured the French Grand Prix today. It's, my, of course, my favorite team and my favorite driver, and so I'm thrilled about the victory. And, uh, you know, he continues to be the best racer, uh, not just last year, as he demonstrated fairly and completely and without any uh, controversy whatsoever, but he's backing it up this year once again. Uh, I don't care what the haters have to say. My hat goes off to Max Verstappen. And I'm sure if you're interested in learning more or hearing more about what's going on in F1, you can check out the Pit Stop podcast on the Ordinary, Ordinary Podcast Network. I imagine you boys will be recording this week. Yeah, it'll be out Tuesday. But before we do that, did you watch the race? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I didn't think so. You're just looking at the stats and going, oh, you want to get too early. Elliot doesn't Elliot, get up that early. Elliot, he was not on the Sunday. Seconds. He was 28 seconds behind Charles Leclerc when, <laughs> when Charles Leclerc uh, lost control and wiped out after a throttle pedal problem. Max Verstappen was handed a win today. It was the easiest win of his entire career. Now, I'll give him credit for one thing. He's been a lot less aggressive, which has put him in positions to mop up after other guys make mistakes. Give him credit for that. That's maturing. That's good as a driver. Buddy, you got to watch the race if you're going to take your hat off to him. No, it's just, it just continues. How very Red Bull, though, eh? Just take credit for it. I love it. All right, we'll move that's, on that's, from that's very not, Red Bull. I got the brand Okay. So Red Bull. All right, Elliot, or uh, Braden, who are you taking your hat off to? Well, in the name of uh, handing uh, wins over, uh, I am taking my hat off to the uh, Toronto Blue Jays' very own Rymel Tapia, who had a an inside-the-park grandy, gentlemen, a grand slam inside the park as the Toronto Blue Jays were handed by the Boston Red Sox a 28-5 to piece um that is a baseball score they were two i think three shy of the all-time record um unreal like unreal. it was ugly. <laughs> it was so ugly. I, and you know what they had a sweep of that whole series that. every game was ugly that team is in disarray look i i don't i don't we've all heard on the show i don't watch a lot of baseball i saw the score on my phone while i was at work and at that point i think it was like 22 or 23 and then i looked at the inning and i went oh my god it's the fifth inning these guys are gonna murder them and then i saw the score just tick 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 unbelievable really for the blue jays and after such a a dismal month what where where's all that scoring like why don't they save some of those runs for games that are close well i think what happened <laughs> well i think what happened is they had a very similar situation to uh, the oilers and jay weedcroft uh firing charlie montoya new change of pace they had a nice fresh break where vladdy skipper bounce new skipper bounce vladdy didn't participate in the home run derby so he didn't injure himself or tire himself out there's a lot of energy going into the second yeah, half so here they had their own home run wild derby, card 
It's just the race for the wild card. Nobody's catching the Yankees at this point. So what was the total? What was the what was the final score in the home run derby? How many home runs hit? Fuck if I know. I fell asleep. Was it more than twenty eight? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. That, it was like that in the park grand slam though was was a piece of work because the outfielder just lost it. What happened there? Did he just that he looked lost like, it? Yeah, it, it almost was, looked like he'd been paid off by the mob. Well, it was crazy because he had so much conviction running up to it and then immediately kind of looked around while his teammates well, were and yelling then when at it him. Hit and the, then, when it hit, the, when it hit the, the warning track, he just turned around and started walking. He didn't even well, make an left, yeah, How do you go left, back? How do you show your face in the clubhouse after that? He wasn't going to be the first to get it. Left field was already running nothing. Oh, down. yeah. So you're right. right. You shouldn't even head. jog. No, nah, don't put an like, effort in. No, pull me. And he had he had some more other brutal errors in the, in the, in the last couple of games. Oh, so. That was messy. All right, that was a good one. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Braden, uh, for another uh, uh, good week. Uh, we'll be back next week with more stories. As Elliot mentioned, you can tune into the Pit Stop podcast uh, coming out tomorrow. If you listen to this on Monday, it'll be out on Tuesday, the 26th. We'll recap the race in France. Um, and also, just a quick, uh, another little programming note from the Ordinary Podcasting Network. If you haven't already, please go check out Off the Shelf. It's a book club podcast so if you enjoy reading you want to read some new material host julia coleman will introduce you each month so as we get close to the beginning of august she's gonna have a brand new book she's just wrapping up uh, this last month and in fact we have a very special bonus episode it's our very first month very first book for her book club she's wrapping it up she'll do a review uh, that'll be out friday but she also has a bonus episode she got in touch with the author of the book on her very first book which is awesome so she's gonna have a great conversation with the author of that book um, you should check all that out on Friday. And then next Tuesday, I think it's the second, will be the introduction of the August book. So check that out too if you haven't. You can find out all of this and more on our website at the Ordinary Podcasting Network. So that's the ordinarypodcasts.com. Thank you, Braden. Thank you, Elliot. As I said before, uh, always a pleasure. That was happening. Patrick is a member of the Ordinary Podcasting Network. Produced every week by Jordan Dyler Coltman and Braden Dyler Coltman. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening. The Ordinary Podcasting Network wishes to acknowledge that the lands on which our conversations take place include. Treaty 6 territory, the traditional meeting ground and home for many indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Dene, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, and the Nakota Sioux peoples, as well as the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked these lands for generations. And we extend our appreciation for the opportunity to live, create, and share stories on these territories. The Ordinary Podcasting Network intends to engage in conversations and dialogue, which acknowledge that reconciliation is not a destination, but a journey, and that we remain committed to practicing our craft in a decolonized space.